Turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 7. This is not a section of Scripture that can be treated in sections or segments. So we are going to be looking at the entirety of chapter 7, and I do uh, commend it to your reading. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, uh, but rather, starting in verse 54, I'm going to read the last uh, seven verses of the chapter. Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed upon him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Let us pray. Our Father, we come before you this morning as disciples. As we open your word, we seek to be taught. We desire that your Holy Spirit would instruct us in the way of truth, that you would grant us understanding of this passage of Scripture recorded by the Holy Spirit through your servant Luke. We pray that you would help us to understand the words of Stephen and that they might be put deep into our hearts and help to mold our understanding and our thinking, that we might conform our minds to the mind of our God. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Read the last few verses of the passage of the chapter uh, simply to show what was the result of Stephen's speech. Because as we look at this speech, we have to uh, interpret it in a manner that fits the reaction. Many views of this, uh, of this speech are, I think, very wide of the mark. George Bernard Shaw, for example, a famous English playwright, considered this speech to be a, a, a rambling and, and tedious history. He wrote that uh, Stephen inflicted upon the Sanhedrin a tedious sketch of the history of Israel with which they were per- presumably as well acquainted as he. Now, I know many of us have in school been in history classes that were so boring that we wanted to rush upon the teacher as one man and drag him outside the school and stone him to death. No, we just kind of put up with it. Kind of put up with it. So I I think Mr. Shaw is wide of the mark in saying that that Stephen's review of Israel's history is is tedious and rambling and simply goes over the same material that all of his audience already knew anyhow. However... Maybe I'm the only one in this room that will admit this, but there have been times in the past when I've read this speech and consider it somewhat rambling, 
starting with Abraham, he goes to Joseph, and then to Moses, and then to David and Solomon, and next thing you know, he's leveling a charge of being stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart, and you wonder, how did you get there? Stephen, how did you get from where you were to where you are now? Uh, Maybe, again, maybe I'm the only one that's ever wondered uh, about that, but on the other extreme of common views is a man by the name of William Neal, a biblical commentator, who believes that Stephen's speech is a subtle and skillful proclamation of the gospel. It's so subtle, I don't get it. I mean, we want to find the gospel in in what we read, and and Stephen obviously was the the proto-martyr. He was the first martyr of our church. And so obviously, you know, we believe that he was killed for the gospel. Well, in a sense he was, yes. But to say that his speech is a subtle and skillful proclamation of the gospel, I think is stretching the facts somewhat. And in fact, I think if, if we were to try that, if we were to go out on the street corner and start talking about the history of Israel, but, but really just picking out certain points of it and not going over the whole thing, it would not be effective as a proclamation of the gospel. So I think we have these two extremes. On the one side, George Bernard Straw, who, Shaw, who was always on the extremes in whatever he said, claiming that Stephen was boring and tedious, and that's why they stoned him. On the other side, the more common view, at least among our evangelical circles, is that Stephen is making a skillful proclamation of the gospel. I don't think either of these views is accurate. I think we have to to do two things as we approach this section of Scripture if we want to understand what Stephen has to say. First of all, we need to understand that he is in court. He is before the Sanhedrin. Now, this is a more official gathering even than the one that Jesus was dragged before because this was happening during the day in the temple. He was on trial. He was on trial for heresy, But even more important than that, and I hope that I'm able to show that, he was on trial for treason. And treason in every nation in history has been a capital offense. Because treason is murder of the state. Okay, It's a manner by which a person kills the authority of the ruling party, the state, the king, the ruling priests. And that is destructive of the security of society. So treason is really the charge that is being leveled against Stephen here. And we also have to keep this in mind, what I just read, and that is that what Stephen does say incites, inflames his audience to irrational violence. There is no pronounced judgment upon him. Notice that. There is no sequestering of a jury and a bringing of an indictment. There is no charge that is leveled against him by the court. He is simply dragged out and stoned. In other words, he made them mad. So, any interpretation that doesn't pull the chain of those who are hearing it is not the correct one. Whatever interpretation that we have of what Stephen has to say, it has to be sufficient to make a group of Jewish religious leaders incredibly angry. 
murderously angry. Just boring them with a history lesson doesn't quite do it. So let's look at what he has to say. Okay. Well, the charge leveled against him is again by what we read are false witnesses in the end of chapter 6. He says, they put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Now this place, of course, is the temple. And the customs that Moses handed down is the law. Temple and Torah. This is what it's all about. Okay? These are the twin pillars of Israelite society. The temple and the Torah. And the accusation is that Stephen is attacking both. In other words, if he is successful in denigrating the temple and knocking that pillar away, and if he is successful in putting away the customs brought down to us from Moses and knocking that pillar out of the way, then our entire culture will fall. This is serious. For the Jews, this is incredibly serious. But in what manner were these witnesses false? Have you ever wondered that? Did not Jesus say, tear down this temple and in three days I will build it? Destroy this temple made with hands and in three days I will raise up a temple not made with hands? Did he not say that the Lord or I should say, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath? In, in other words, did He not take the law of Moses and present it back to the people in a way they had never heard before, altering the customs handed down to them from Moses? In, in other words, this new religion, Christianity, was it not an attack upon the twin pillars of Judaism and of Israelite society? Well, Jesus did allude to the destruction of the temple. And he did interpret the law in a ways very different from the scribes. His, his ministry and his message did target these two very central facets, features of Israelite society. So I think we can say that the witnesses that were brought against Stephen, same as the witness, they may have been the same men, who were brought against Jesus at his trial, their witness was not false in content but rather in understanding. Jesus, for example, did not say that he would destroy the temple. He simply said, destroy the temple. Or he might have said, let this temple be destroyed. And in three days, I will raise it up again. And Jesus did not say that he came to abrogate the law, but rather that not one jot or tittle of the law would pass away. He came to fulfill it. And so what he said could be heard through false ears as treason, as an attack upon the central pillars of Israelite society. But in believing ears, what he had to say might bring salvation. It might bring the return, the final return from the exile about which we just sung in that hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. That I'm blessed by the selection of that hymn because it incredibly summarizes Stephen's speech with ears that can understand, ears that can hear. 
Stephen's speech does in fact bring the salvation that was promised to the fathers. And so the context of Stephen's speech is that he has been charged with treason. He has been charged with speaking against the temple and against Torah. And we need to understand that his response is not just an an arbitrary and, and meandering walk through Israelite history. It is, in fact, a defense against the charges with which he has been charged. He does defend himself. But then he also turns it around into an indictment. And the accused becomes the accuser. Now you say, okay, yeah, that begins in verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit. Now that's not where it begins. His indictment begins at the beginning of his speech. His accusation of his accusers is woven through the entire speech. He actually is following a very well-known rabbinic form of speaking. This was the common ground for all Israelites. Abraham. You start with Abraham. And so they stop to listen. Because he's speaking their language now. He's bringing back their glorious history that they are so proud of. And that they believe is the foundation of their future hope. And then he walks through that history. But what he is doing, as he is walking through, he is not only defending himself against the charge of treason, he is weaving together an indictment against his accusers. So when we get to verse 51, it is not this sudden and arbitrary shift from defense to attack. The attack began a long time before. It's been building all the way through. And it is the logical manifestation of what he has already said. And that's what I hope to bring out as we look at this in in more detail over the next few minutes. The essence of Israelite identity was that the nation had been the chosen of God from among all the nations on the planet. Now, I don't, I don't think that modern Western evangelicals understand or appreciate what it meant and what it means to be a Jew. You know, we joke about our heritage, you know, what it means to be this or that. We have stereotypes of, of all the different ethnicities, But there is no people on the planet who were the chosen of God from among all the people. Only the Jews. And even in the midst of their apostasy, even in the midst of their greatest disobedience, they still held to themselves being the people of God. Okay? And I think that identity is is central to their acceptance of God, but also their rejection of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel and the advent of the Messiah actually tore away their identity. We don't understand the difficulties that the early church had with the bringing in of Gentiles into the church on the same basis as the Jews if we don't understand what it meant to be a Jew. What it meant to be a Jew was to be nothing else. 
The closest parallel we have in history were the Greeks. They consider themselves also to be chosen of the gods. They consider themselves alone to be descended from the gods. All other nations rose up out of the ground. They believed all other peoples to be the product of dirt. Now I wonder where they got that notion. You know? That out of the dust of the ground man was formed. But the Greeks alone were brought down from the gods. So that's the closest we have to the, to the mentality of the Jews. They were, out of all of the nations, chosen by the one true God. And their identity was marked upon them by the temple and by the Torah. The structure and the survival of this identity rested on these two pillars. You know, we say as Israelite society, the Jewish religion, it was, it was deeper than that. It was themselves, and here's another example, even though historically um, it's not quite accurate. But the Hanoverian kings of England wished to destroy the identities of the clans of Scotland. And so they forbade the wearing of the tartans. See, that, that's, what, that's what I'm talking about here. You see, the, the clans had a badge. They had a mark of their family, their clan. It was their tartan. And when they went into battle against each other, which they did too frequently, they wouldn't have a flag. They would be wearing their identity in their kilt, their tartan. And so the English kings wanted to destroy that and, and to annihilate the unique identity of the Scottish by forbidding their tartans. Okay? See, that's what, that's what happens when you take away the, the identity. I don't know, maybe for the Italians it's like taking away their spaghetti. You know, thou shalt not have pasta. You know, I don't, I don't think we'd, we'd fight quite all, like they do. But, you know, there's a certain identity that if you take it away, the people lose themselves. You take away the temple, you take away the Torah, you take away Jewishness at its very heart. You see how serious this is? You know, there, there really isn't a whole lot of room for talking about biblical exegesis here. You're, you're attacking who I am at this point. And that's why these men were so angry. But the advent of Christ in the New Covenant did alter the temple and the Torah. Look, let's look at the temple. Three things that we can, we can say about the temple. First of all, it was considered to be the dwelling place of Israel's covenant God. It was the place where God made his name to dwell. It was the holy place. The second thing we could say is that it was the place of sacrifice. It was the place where the Israelites made atonement for their sins and received the grace of forgiveness from God. Especially Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, was at the temple. Thirdly, it was the political center of a kingless nation. Now we have to understand that Israel had no true king at this time. They had King Herod, the, the Herodians. And prior to that they had the, the Hasmonean dynasty that came out of the Maccabees. But these were not the descendants of David. And without David, there's no king. You know, that's in the prophecies. That's in the rabbinic writings. That's in the expectations of the Jews of the second temple. 
And that is that the, the Messiah who was to come was the Davidic king. They would once again have a king. And where the center of political power in David's day was the royal palace, now it was the temple. So it was the political center of their life, the place where God had caused his name to dwell, the place of sacrifice, and the political center of the nation. One author writes, The temple remains the central point of the national hope, as well as of the national life and identity. I don't really know that there is an equivalent anywhere. You can't say London Bridge is because it's in Arizona. Maybe the Eiffel Tower. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll hardly see a postcard of Paris without the Eiffel Tower. The Colosseum for Rome. Obviously, Pisa has a pretty important, you know, landmark. An architectural disaster becomes a national landmark. That's... <laughs> That's mankind. The temple was, for the people of Israel, their, their, their ground zero. Okay? It was the center of their universe, like, not, not, like no other place in their life. So what could its destruction mean but abandonment by God? Read the prophet Ezekiel. Read about the departure of the Spirit from the temple. The destruction of the temple was abandonment by their God. It was their God pulling away from them. Their covenant God, their reason for being, saying, I am your God no longer. What could its rebuilding be but eschatological salvation? Once it was destroyed, what was their hope? That it would be rebuilt. They were the people of God throughout that time. The prophets reminded them of that as well. Even though God withdrew His Spirit from the temple and that temple was destroyed, they were still the people of God. And the, and the, the essence of their hope was wrapped up in the rebuilding of that temple. Without that temple, they can't have sacrifice. Without their ta that temple, God's name is not settled among them. He is not dwelling with them. You can't just destroy it and go on. How about the Torah? Well, modern evangelical Christianity, I think, misunderstands Second Temple Judaism. We tend to think of Judaism as a works religion, do we not? And, and, and you know, there's some understanding and there's some reason for that. We're, we're told in the scriptures that he who will obey the law, the law will do the law. And if you break any point of the law, you are a lawbreaker. But it is a, an incorrect step to go from that to them thinking that they were saved by the law. Even it's in Habakkuk where we're told that the righteous shall walk by faith. And even in Deuteronomy, we're told about being circumcised in the heart. You see, the truth of regeneration is not just a New Testament reality. The law in the Old Testament was given to Israel, by their own understanding, was given to Israel from the grace of God. God chose Israel to whom to give His law. No one else. In Acts chapter 14... Paul speaks of the other nations and says God just kind of left them to their own devices. That, that's not a good thing. But Israel he chose and as a sign of his gracious love, he gave them 
the law, not by which they would be saved, but rather to mark them out as his people. This is how the whole world will know and how you will know that you are my people. The law. Well, how does the world know that we are the disciples? Well, one, by obeying his commands, and two, by loving one another. It's not so different. God gives his people a means by which they are known to themselves and they are known vis-a-vis the rest of the world. We're not them. Or the rest of the world says, they're not us. They have marks, they have badges, they have, they have aspects about them that, that set them apart. And for the Jew, it was the law. Zeal for Yahweh meant zeal for Torah. If you were a zealous Jew, that meant you obeyed the law of Moses. You followed the customs that were handed down through the generations. These were badges of unique identity. And there were three of them, basically. Circumcision, the Sabbath, and kosher, the dietary laws. Now, these weren't just things that rabbis wrote about. These are things that non-Jews wrote about the Jews. They, they won't work on the seventh day. Okay? They circumcise their sons on the eighth day as a ritual before their God. And what's really weird is they won't eat pork. They won't drink this. They won't eat that. They have these weird dietary laws. These were things that, that manifested their Jewishness in the midst of the rest of the world. It's like Deuteronomy 4 where Moses says, These will be your testimony in the presence of all of the nations before whom I am placing you. The Sabbath, circumcision, and dietary laws. This was Torah. This was the living out of the customs of Moses. The same writer says, The works of Torah were not a legalist's ladder up which one climbed to earn the divine favor. No, they already had the divine favor. See, that's what I think we don't understand about Jews. They, they weren't this nervous, introspective people afraid that God would no longer love them. They had been abundantly told that they were loved among, from among all the people. They had already received the divine favor through Abraham. The manifestation or the giving of the law was an example of that divine favor. They didn't have to earn it. God had graciously given it to them. They were God's people. Do our children have to live their lives desperately trying to earn our favor? Well, if it's true, you're a lousy parent. You know? And God is not a lousy parent. Okay, so our understanding of the law, I think, needs to be uh, modified. These were badges one wore as the mark of identity, as belonging to the chosen people in the present, and hence that one belonged to the company who would be vindicated when the covenant God acted to redeem his people. These marks were the present signs of their future vindication. And this was no more powerful than when the Jews were under oppression, either when they were in Babylon or when they were in their land but under the Roman yoke. They knew that they were not outwardly their own people. They were not a sovereign nation. They were not free to do what they wanted, but they knew that their covenant God would one day vindicate them. 
And what was it that they held to as, as marks of this future vindication as well as the present identity of who they were? The temple and Torah, the law. Who but God alone could declare the law fulfilled? Who but the Messiah could fulfill the law? And what would happen to the nation if these badges were taken away? What would happen to the nation, the people of God, if others were allowed to come in and to join it without the temple, without circumcision, without the dietary laws, and even without the Sabbath? Do you see how destructive this gospel could be interpreted? Do you see what this new teaching says, what it may do to the people of Israel? It may obliterate them. There is neither Jew nor Greek. In Christ, circumcision means nothing, and uncircumcision means nothing. What the Lord himself has declared clean, let no man call unclean. The Sabbath, let every day be the same or one day different than another. See, all of these pillars are being, or all of these two pillars are being attacked by the gospel, by Stephen. And so I think we can begin to understand why these men were getting so angry. And so Stephen's speech, neither a rambling history of, of Israel nor a subtle and skillful proclamation of the gospel, was actually a subtle and skillful defense against the charges that he was attacking the temple and the law. He was actually preaching a fulfillment of both. Now, in reality, in political reality, it meant a destruction of the temple and a complete alteration of our understanding of the law. He admitted that. But what he does in his speech is to take these charges and to turn them around into an indictment against his accusers. How about the temple? Well, where does God dwell? Well, he starts off in verse 2, and he says, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of the glory appeared to our father Abraham where? Well, when he was living in Mesopotamia. Okay? And then called him a second time when he was living in Syria, in Haran. And he goes on to show that God presented himself to the patriarchs in many different places, including even Egypt. Hmm. God called Abraham. He appeared to the patriarch in Mesopotamia. He watched over and exalted Joseph, and he favored and loved Moses in Egypt. He appeared to Moses in the burning bush where he called it holy ground, in Sinai, in the wilderness. And then he came to them in a tabernacle where he caused his glory to dwell, but that tabernacle moved around the wilderness for 40 years and then for several hundred years moved around the tribes in the promised land, only coming to one place in Jerusalem in the days of Solomon, centuries after God first spoke to Abraham. In other words, where does God dwell? Well, He dwells where His people are. There's actually a hymn. You know, Jesus, wherever 
Thy people are there, there you are. There the glory of the Lord is. See, this is something that the Jews in the Second Temple had, had lost sight of. As soon as Solomon built that structure, they locked God inside of it. Instead of realizing that the whole history of their people shows God to be incapable of being locked in one place. And Stephen actually quotes the word here in verse 40. Heaven is my throne and the earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? See, he refused to isolate God. He refuses to say that the temple is the place where God dwells only, but rather that God is omnipresent and that God has been with his people wherever his people have been. That's kind of the point here. Even Solomon in his dedicatory prayer realized prophetically that in the future the people would be scattered and that, they're, they're, that God would be with them where they were and would restore them to their homeland if they prayed. But of his own temple that he built, Solomon said, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house which I have built. And even as glorious as Herod's temple was, it was apparently nothing compared to Solomon's. So as glorious a house, as expensive a house as Solomon could build, even Solomon would recognize, this can't contain you. And so subtly, yet skillfully, Stephen is saying to his audience, you put too much hope in this temple. You don't remember in the days of Jeremiah when your father said, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, no harm can come to us. We have the temple. And Jeremiah told them, don't do that. Don't put your hope in a building. Don't pretend that God is located in one place and only one place. Don't think that in spite of your wickedness and your apostasy, you can still run into the temple and be safe. No, that's going to be destroyed. And that temple was, by the Babylonians, utterly destroyed. What about this temple? What's in store for it? Well, the day is coming, Jesus said, when there will not rest one stone upon another. Yeah. He's not going to do it. Well, yes, he is. He's the Lord of glory. But not by his own hands and not by his followers. But he will use, as he used the Babylonians, as he used the Assyrians, he will use the Romans. And instead of this temple being their security, it would be for many of the Jews, over a million in Jerusalem alone, their grave. It will be their death. The Jews had locked God up in his own temple, but the God of the glory had no intention of staying there. And, and I want to say, in spite of the teaching of dispensationalism, I firmly believe he has no intentions of returning there. He had no intentions of another physical building called a temple. As to the law, well, this is another difficult, difficulty for both Jews and dispensationalists. God called Abraham and gave him circumcision apart from the law, right? In fact, 400 years before the law. God exalted Joseph and grew the nation in Israel, or in Egypt, I should say, apart from the law. 
They, they grew into a nation apart from the law. Even in the law, from the lawgiver Moses, is the promise of one who was greater than Moses. Verse 37, Stephen says, This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. Even the lawgiver said, There's one coming greater than me. And what did he say? Listen to him. Listen to him. For whoever will not listen to him shall be cut off from among the people. Well, where does that place the law? Well, it certainly places it subservient to the one greater than Moses. One author says, If Moses himself foretold the coming of a successor who should supersede him, he alone pays proper respect to Moses who submits to his successor. Who are the lawbreakers here? The one who follows the greater than Moses? Or the one who clings to Moses, even though Moses spoke of Jesus? See, this is where Stephen is going. With the location of God and with the reality of the law, he's turning it around and he's about to aim it right back at his accusers and fire. Not just arbitrarily turning on them. He's building a case. A case, just like we read before, that they cannot refute and to which they can only respond in violent anger. Verse 51, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Listen to the words of Stephen's master in Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How can you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, Stephen, I believe, the first. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Stephen is merely repeating what his master said earlier. But how does he do it in his speech? And maybe you've wondered this. I have often wondered, why Joseph? You know, of all the men that he could have talked about throughout the history of Israel, he goes to Joseph. He even really passes over Isaac and, and Jacob, and he goes to Joseph. Well, he goes to Joseph because Joseph is a pattern. See, Joseph is a rejected one who becomes the deliverer of his people. And then he goes from Joseph 
to Moses. And he brings out the fact that when Moses tried to deliver the people, they rejected him. They said, who, who made you the leader? What, are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian yesterday? Huh? And the one who was rejected by the people, what happened? He was raised up by God to be their deliverer. You see the pattern? The people throughout their generations have rejected the one whom God named to be their deliverer. But in spite of that, God raised that man up and still delivered his people. They, they sold Joseph into bondage. He becomes the, the second power in Egypt and delivers his people from the destruction of famine. Moses is cast out into a river and then cast out into Midian for 40 years and yet God raises him up to deliver his people. Jesus is rejected by his people. He is killed by his people. And yet God still raises him up to deliver his people. This is a powerful indictment. And Stephen says, you are just like your fathers. Your fathers were the ones who rejected Joseph, and yet God, through Joseph, delivered your fathers. Your fathers were the one who rejected Moses, but God, through Moses, delivered your fathers. You are the ones who are rejected and killed the righteous one, and yet God will, through Jesus, deliver you. They couldn't stand it. The die was cast. The temple would be destroyed. Stephen had nothing to do about that. The prophecy had already been given. The Jews were going to lose those twin pillars of their identity, the temple and the Torah. But the new temple of Christ's body and the new law of the new covenant would continue to grow throughout the ages. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you so much for our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that grace, that amazing grace that has brought us and grafted us in to your chosen people. We do not have this heritage, but perhaps because we did not have the heritage, we also did not have the heritage of rebellion against your chosen one. Father, it is all by your grace, and we do pray that you might again remove the hardening that has come upon your people Israel, that you might bring them into their Messiah, Jesus Christ, into your church, for your glory and the exaltation of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, please stand for the benediction this morning from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.